This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, I'm Elise Lunen, Chief Content Officer over here at Goop and co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop Podcast. My guest today is Jamil Zaki, who I met via one of my other favorite podcast guests, James Doty. I can't wait for you to hear my chat with Jamil. But before we get to him, I want to give a shout out to our friends at Kettle One Botanical, who brought you today's episode. One of my goals for the year is to spend more time with friends who I haven't seen nearly enough of. Preferably, these catch-ups happen over a good drink or two. For these occasions, I like to have our home bar stocked up with Kettle One Botanical. If you haven't tried it yet, it's vodka distilled with real botanicals. It has a pretty fresh taste and makes an excellent base for cocktails. If you're looking for recipe ideas, I highly suggest trying the Botanical Breeze or Lady Kombucha Cooler from Goop.com. The other reason we like Kettle One Botanical is because it's made with non-GMO grain and doesn't contain sugar or artificial sweeteners. They've got three varietals, cucumber and mint, grapefruit and rose, and peach and orange blossom. To shop for Kettle One Botanical, head to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Jamil Zaki is a psychology professor at Stanford University and the director of the Stanford Social Neurosciences Lab. He just wrote an inspiring new book about empathy, The War for Kindness. Jamil believes that empathy is not something we're either born with or without. It's actually a skill we can strengthen. In my chat with him today, he tells us how. If you think 
that being empathic means suffering when someone else suffers, well then for you, in your attempt to be a good person, you might burn out. But if you're able to internalize that caring about somebody is not the same as sort of feeling pain all the time, that it in fact can be a joyous experience, a joyous attempt to bring someone out of a dark place and help them see a new type of light, well then I think maybe even empathic parenting doesn't have to be parenting that sort of ages us in, yeah. in, uh, in, in, uh, in fast motion. Let's get to Jamil. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Congrats on your book. Thank you. Obviously needed in today's time and well-timed. Is that what inspired you to write it? It's interesting. I've been studying empathy for 15 years, and I always wanted to write before being a psychologist. I, I, I had a past life as a frustrated fiction writer. I wrote a oh. ton of fiction and always loved writing and thought, oh, it'd be great to bring these two things together. But it wasn't until the last few years that I just noticed, as a scientist, I was studying how we care for each other and connect with each other and how that helps us. But as a person, I was noticing how much that was missing from people's lives. Being a psychologist studying empathy kind of started feeling like being a climate scientist studying the polar ice caps, like you are discovering the value of something just like as it fades all around you. Oh, that is so sad. I know. <laughs> oh. It did feel sad. And, you know, at around the same time, I had my wife and I had our uh, kids. And so I was thinking, gosh, there's got to be a way to push back against these trends where we are increasingly feeling isolated and just pulled apart from each other. And I knew from my science and lots of other people's science that there is a way to fight back, right. that we can reclaim empathy even under these difficult, tough circumstances. Yeah. One of the things that I loved in the book that I thought it's at the very beginning and it's so helpful is you tease apart the differences between cognitive empathy, which is identifying what others feel, emotional empathy, which is sharing in those emotions, an empathic concern, which is the wishing to improve their circumstances. Did I do that right? Yeah, you nailed it. So why and why do you think it's so important that we sort of understand what it is and which ones are more helpful and which ones are more debilitating? Yeah, it's super important to understand what empathy is because that informs the way that we use it and work with it, right? Mm -hmm. So like you said, there are these different pieces of empathy and we might think of them as just different sides of the same coin that always go together, but in fact, they can split apart. So for instance, people with autism have trouble with cognitive empathy. Sometimes they have trouble knowing what other people are feeling, but they don't have any difficulties sharing what other people feel. They're mm -hmm. often highly concerned about other people. Individuals with psychopathy sometimes have the opposite sort of profile where they can understand what someone's feeling but don't care very much or share those emotions. There's also, I think, another reason that it's important for us to know about different pieces of empathy is because different ones can hurt or help in different situations. Yeah. Like if you are with a friend who gets really upset or has, is injured, for instance, if you just share their pain, you might not be very helpful, right? right? You might not want your surgeon, for instance, to be crying while they operate on you, right? But you might want the, those same individuals to care for you, right? To experience empathic concern. Exactly. And I think it's important, like I, I want to get to mindset and the ways that we can develop our own empathy, because I think that's incredibly promising and very optimistic part of the book. <laughs> but also I think it's, you brought up, you talk a lot about sort of the overwhelming crises, sadness, trauma, tragedy that 
is a through line throughout the world. And I guess social media just magnifies it, right? And the news magnifies it in the sense that no longer are we just ingesting it in the morning when we're reading the paper. It's constant. And you talk about how the double bind of feeling, you know, of the man who walks down the street in New York and is confronted by all of the need he can give to others until he has nothing left or live with the guilt of not giving. And I feel that, certainly. Like, it's, it's so difficult to... It, it, it's a really hard balance. Like, what's the appropriate amount to tithe, right? Absolutely. And when do you obviate guilt? When are you not doing enough? When are you doing too much? How do you not burn out? This is one of the fundamental problems of modern empathy, right? I mean, we evolved to have this deep care and connection with the people around us. But when we evolved, you know, think about 100,000 years ago, there weren't that many people around. And the people around us were our family and neighbors and the people in our tribes. We have this unprecedented opportunity, and some would say moral responsibility, to now extend that same type of care not just to the people in our immediate vicinity, but to people all around the world who need our help. And yet, that can feel fundamentally overwhelming. Yeah. There was a poll that came out last year that seven out of 10 Americans have news fatigue. Basically, we're just inundated with stories of vast suffering that are all just a click away. And it feels impossible, almost like numbs you to hear about all that suffering and feel like you can't make a difference. And that's one of the trickiest parts about trying to be an empathic person now is sort of fighting that exhaustion. I think there are lots of ways to do it. One is through self-care, right? And ensuring that we don't sort of share other people's pain to such a degree that it leaves us debilitated. Mm -hmm. Another is, as you sort of speaking to the distinction you talked about earlier, focusing on cultivating empathic concern as opposed to sort of emotional empathy and sharing other people's pain. It turns out there are sort of contemplative like meditation techniques that can help people focus on sort of experiencing goodwill and concern for others without kind of drowning in their pain. What are some of those? So loving kindness meditation is one that psychologists and neuroscientists have studied a lot. There is, there's one wonderful neuroscientist from Germany named Tanya Singer who does a lot of work where she trains people in different types of loving kindness meditation and another meditation where they focus on sharing other people's pain. So basically emotional empathy versus empathic concern. She then puts them in an MRI scanner and scans their brain while they hear stories like you might see in the news of people suffering and in need of help. She finds that if you do a type of meditation focused on sharing other people's pain, watching those videos is like you're receiving electric shocks, right? Mm -hmm. You are suffering alongside those people, which might sound like a sort of moral thing to do, but it's exhausting for people. If instead she trains people in loving-kindness meditation, well, then they activate parts of their brain that are associated with reward instead, which might sound weird. You might say, wait a minute, reward while watching other people in pain? What is this, like schadenfreude, like people are enjoying others' pain? That's not what compassion and empathic concern are about. They're about imagining a future where someone's suffering might be diminished, mm. where they might be doing better. And thinking to yourself about how you can contribute to that better world. Right. So, and then are there practical, are there practical ways to do that sort of in this minefield of human suffering? Like, have you seen people who manage to engage at an appropriate level and stay engaged? Because that's where I feel like I'm like, 
I go and then I retreat and then I go and then I retreat. Like what's, how how do people, and I know you talk about ICU nurses and doctors, you talk about people who are just confronted by pain on a daily basis. How do they wash it off? First of all, I think that the rhythm that you're describing, you go in and then come back, is perfectly okay. And I think one of the things that I try to tell people who struggle with being overwhelmed with empathy is that it's okay to withdraw. It's okay to focus on yourself as well. Empathy is not about just constantly giving of yourself until there's nothing left. That's not sustainable and therefore not, in my opinion, the best way to do good in the world. Like you mentioned, I went to the NICU, the sort of intensive care nursery, where my older daughter spent the first couple of weeks of her life. And the people there are like empathic superheroes, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they care for people at the hardest moment in their life and then somehow go home and care for their own family and then come back and do it again. But one thing that I noticed about people who were able to sustain that is, well, first of all, like we were talking about earlier, they focus on the good they can do rather than the pain around them. But a second thing is that they have compassion for themselves. Mm-hmm. And this is one of the things that I feel like is most important. And so loving kindness meditation, for instance, often starts not by focusing your goodwill on every living creature in the universe, but it starts at home with sort of feeling empathy and compassion for oneself. And I think that's a really important piece of sustainable caring is understanding that that it's not selfish or self-centered to focus on sort of forgiving yourself for whatever failures you have, including failures to care about everyone all the time. Right. Yeah, I loved, too, that moment in the book where I think it's one of the NICU nurses says that she repeats to herself, this is not my tragedy, this is not my tragedy, this is not my tragedy, which I would imagine, because it, it, as you said, it isn't helpful, right? When and that's, I think, in, in healthcare in general, and I thought those parts of the book were really fascinating. It is this very weird, nebulous balance of feeling like your doctor cares about you. Right. And there's not enough of that probably in yeah. modern healthcare, <laughs> but then also feeling like your doctor can be strong for you and reasonable. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a, this, is the, this is the double bind that I talk about in the book a lot, right? I mean, patients benefit when their physicians are empathic, when their mm-hmm. nurses and social workers are empathic, even when the other staff at a hospital are empathic. This, they're more satisfied patients are with their care when they are treated by someone empathic, but it goes deeper than that. They're also more likely to follow doctor's orders, for instance, or to tell physicians about things that they would otherwise keep to themselves, but that might be really important clues. And there's even some evidence that patients of empathic physicians heal more quickly from certain illnesses and injuries. But that same empathy can be an occupational hazard for the person delivering it. So, right. so this is why I think it's so important to, again, focus on that rhythm of, uh, of experiencing empathic concern, but not drowning in other people's distress and also sort of forgiving oneself for needing time and for needing a break and for needing to focus on, on ourselves. Right. And the processing, I think, was it rise, resilience and stressful events, but programs like that, too, which correct me if I'm wrong, but. That's a program where people within the medical community can talk about things that went wrong or outcomes that weren't desirable or mistakes that were made and sort of air it and mourn it without burying it in shame. 
That's exactly Because right. that's an empathy killer, right? Shame is a tremendous problem for empathy because it turns us inward and focuses us on our own failures and makes it impossible in some cases to connect with others. It's like stress and loneliness and isolation. So yeah, RISE was a program founded at Johns Hopkins that was expressly for medical professionals who had made a mistake or where there had been an adverse event, something they didn't expect would happen that did, like a patient suddenly dying. Mm -hmm. And these people oftentimes, as as, as you're mentioning, sort of experience shame, retreat into themselves, and that kills conversation and kills empathy. So uh, oftentimes these medical professionals who had made mistakes felt like they didn't deserve empathy because it was their fault that someone else was in pain. Mm -hmm. But they're in pain too. And oftentimes when we try to help someone, we don't succeed necessarily. You try to console a friend, but they don't seem to feel better, right? Your kid, you know, you try to console your kid and, and they don't seem to feel better. And it can be tempting to just say like, I failed and, and this is over. But that's neither compassionate for oneself nor really for the people around us because it sort of shuts us off and makes it harder for us to keep on caring. Totally, and everyone loses. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on The Goop List, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. This. Just a second, we're taking a quick break. One of the perks of working at Goop is getting to try the latest recipes that come out of the test kitchen. Our food editors, Caitlin and Anna, are probably the most well-liked people in our office. You might have heard them on the podcast a little while back talking to GP about her new cookbook, The Clean Plate. They're both great. Primarily, Caitlin and Anna come up with new recipes for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, or they're cleaning up some version of a favorite snack. But occasionally, they get into drinks, and that's when you really want to be around the test kitchen for sampling. Caitlin and Anna have gotten pretty prolific with their cocktails using Kettle One Botanical, They did a riff on the classic sea breeze using hibiscus tea, lime juice, and Kettle One Botanical Grapefruit and Rose. That one might be my favorite. If you want to test it out yourself, check out their recipe on goop.com. Depending on the kind of cocktail you're in the mood for, Kettle One Botanical comes in a couple of other flavors. There's also cucumber and mint and peach and orange blossom. You can shop Kettle One Botanical online at drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y. My family and I live in a small house in Los Angeles, which we love. It's an architectural home, a historic monument, designed by A. Quincy Jones in the 50s. He designed it for post-war families who didn't, as it turns out, have much stuff. 
So our house is a 1,500 square foot wonder with essentially no storage space. This is where California Closets comes in. Our bedroom closet was an add-on. It had a wide reach-in that wasn't at all accessible. For a while, I was shoving things behind the sliding doors and just praying that they didn't come unhinged. We try to consume and accumulate as little as we can, but still, we have two kids and we're exploding out of whatever storage we have. And most of it, like our bedroom closet, is deeply dysfunctional. So I was relieved when California Closets came to my house for a makeover. They've been building custom storage spaces for over four decades. Their design consultant came to our house and really got to know the pros and cons of the space. And then she held my hand throughout the process. She counted my things and planned my closet specifically for what I had in need, so I didn't get stuck with unused space. And California Closets has a ton of design options, which they'll also help you navigate. I liked that I could see and understand our closet design in 3D before I decided to pull the trigger on our installation. And I'm so happy with the result. The California Closets team just wrapped up a custom built-in closet that gives us floor-to-ceiling storage. The new closet takes up less space and has dramatically opened up the room. All of our stuff is much easier to get to and see, and I'll never have to hide things behind the doors again. I even got my jewelry in order, which is one thing that I tend to accumulate with abandon, with a chic jewelry box from their new California Closets Essentials Collection, which has a bunch of other great closet accessories too. Also, the new design works with, rather than against, the defining architectural style of the house. And as an added bonus, this all inspired me to go full-on Marie Kondo in our wardrobes, which is maybe my favorite thing to do ever. You can see the finished product that they did for me, yourself, on Goop. And to get started on a project of your own, you can request a free design consultation at californiaclosets.com slash Elise. Okay, let's hear more from Jamil Zaki. So let's talk about developing empathy, because I love the idea that it's really a mindset that women are not inherently maybe yeah. a little <laughs> bit more empathetic than men, but that's kind of a fallacy, right? Or that can be worked out. Like men can rise to the challenge. I, I hope so. Yeah. You <laughs> seem um, to be doing it well. So yeah, I mean, first of all, at a broad level, one of the big things that I, that I try to tackle in the book is the idea that empathy is a trait, that it's sort of hard-coded into our genes and wired into our brains. And you have some level of empathy and just like the color of your eyes, it's probably not going to change. That type of thinking is ironically one of the things that tempts us into not pushing ourselves to grow our empathy or to care more. And one of the versions of this is the stereotype that men are incapable of caring or understanding other people's emotions uh, as, as well as women are. And as you say, there's some evidence that that's true. Women, for instance, do better at decoding other people's feelings than men do on standard tests. But guess what? If you tell people that that's not a test of empathy, but a test of social intelligence, men suddenly start to do better. Not better than women, but they start their performance improves. If you pay men and women to get other people, men do better. Not better than women, but almost so as well. So we do always win. We are the more empathic, the more empathic gender. We can get it to be close to a tie. <laughs> Very um, competitive. One of my favorite studies in this domain was one not having to do with money, but they had heterosexual men as part of this study and told some of them that women found sensitive guys attractive. And that 
sort of turned up men's empathy <laughs> as much as uh, as the incentive of being paid, right? So I mean, this and did is, it last? Well, so we don't know because a lot of these studies on turning up empathy la- are, are, are single laboratory sessions, right? right? So I sort of give you some information and test your empathy. And maybe, maybe that test is 10 minutes after the manipulation. So we don't know whether that type of thing could last. But I mean, I think that it's interesting that that message is so different than what many boys and men hear outside the lab, right? So, I mean, you can imagine sort of this idea that, okay, if men believe that empathy is valued, that it's attractive, that it's meaningful, for, it's something that they should pursue, if you tell them that, they pursue it for the next 10 or 20 minutes. But what are they being told when they leave? Maybe they're being told that that's not valuable, that being masculine means being sort of rough and tumble and not sort of tapping into our emotions as much. To the extent that we're reinforced with that message over and over again, that could dull our empathy. But to the extent that we sort of provide messages that are empathy positive over and over again, mm-hmm. right, then you could imagine there being lasting changes. Right. Or and, and I think if we raise our boys to be empathic as one of the things that we care most about, then maybe the whole culture starts to totally change or I, shift generationally. I think so. And there's a lot of focus these days on empathic education, right? Mm-hmm. Social and emotional learning. The Center for Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin actually created a whole kindness curriculum that's about sort of learning to, teaching kids to tap into their own feelings and recognize feelings in others. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that cultural change can start with any of us, but gosh, it's a really fantastic idea to start young. Um, yeah. yeah. And, the, and it seems like one of the things at the root of empathy, which you write about, which seems to start to be becoming a theme in the culture, is just the lack of of emotional literacy, right? And how we haven't been taught to name, to even know what we're feeling, much less name it. Yeah. So in terms of that, how that's being taught in schools, the idea is that kids go inside themselves, right? And say, oh, I'm feeling frustrated, or I feel ashamed, or... I'm scared. Right. Or is it typically like the emotion underlying the emotion? Yeah. So it, it's really about finding language for our feelings, right? It's, it's, it's easy to, to think that emotions are inherently indescribable, that you, that you feel good or bad. And that's, that's about all that you can say, especially for children. It's hard sometimes to come up with precise language for their feelings. But it turns out that people who can name their emotions are also most effective at working with them, right? Mm-hmm. The same way that someone with a detailed map can find their way out of the woods, right? People who are able to understand precisely, like not just I feel bad, but, oh, you know, I'm a little bit disappointed and really mad and a medium level of sad, right? I mean, can, can sort of understand how to work with their feelings. So in curricula, like the kindness curriculum, what they focus on is sort of coming up with sort of spaces. So you might see, for instance, a, a board with different quadrants, and each quadrant has different feelings in it. Like when you feel bad, feel a negative emotion, it's kind of a quiet negative emotion, like mm-hmm. sadness, versus a loud negative emotion, like anger, versus a loud positive emotion, like joy, 
or a quiet positive emotion like calm, right? And so one of the things that they that some of these social and emo- emotional learning curricula focus on is teaching kids to locate what they're feeling in a space defined, for instance, by how loud or quiet an emotion it, it is and how good or bad it is, right? So for instance, if I feel sad, that might be a quiet negative emotion. And if I feel joyous, that might be a really loud, positive emotion. And helping kids sort of search through themselves and find where in that space they are and find language to describe it. Speaking of language, and I know you wanted to be a fiction writer, as you just said, and I obviously love books and love to read. What you described in terms of the power of fiction to to build empathy and acting, to the arts in general. Yeah. And the, how it allows people to untether. Is that the right word? Yeah, that's the term that I use in the book is untethering. I mean, the thing is, so e- empathy is way older than our species, right? Monkeys, uh, songbirds, rats, mice, all uh, show signs of sharing each other's emotions. But the thing that's special about human empathy is how far we can take it, how far we can spread it. And I think that comes in turn from the power of our imagination, we're able to understand and share the experiences, not just of the people who are right in front of us, but of people all around the world and even fictional characters. And in fact, I think of fiction and narrative and storytelling as one of the oldest sort of performance-enhancing drugs for empathy, right? It's like a, like a technology that we created to help people spread their empathy even further. And in the book, I talk about the, the, the evidence, which is now, I think, pretty impressive, that reading fiction tracks how good people are at understanding others and even boosts their empathy for people who they might otherwise not feel connected with. Mm-hmm. So like preschoolers, the more that they read fiction, the better that they are at empathizing. But even, you know, there's this incredible program that I, that I um, talk about back in my home state of Massachusetts called Changing Lives Through Literature, where this literature professor at UMass teamed up with a judge and they made it such that prisoners could get early parole if they agreed to be in a reading group, reading novels and talking about them with both the, the professor and the judge who sentenced them, which must have been a surreal experience for them. And yet sort of just reading these stories and talking about what they meant decreased the likelihood that these individuals would reoffend by a vast margin, right? So yeah. I, I think of fiction not only as building our empathy sort of for people who are like us, but actually spreading it to people who are unlike us and even helping people who might have trouble with empathy sort of find a new way to connect. Totally. Or just open up the world of possibilities because so many novels are the hero's journey, right? And so you think about the prison population and there's like an, an arc there, redemption and recovery in so many stories. And I know that they picked some of those books specifically, but, you know, they're wedges, right? They're, it's an, a chance to imagine a different ending. Yeah, that's right. And to see the humanity underneath people whose experiences are so very different right. than our own. Yeah. No, I love I love anything that would inspire people to invest in <laughs> that sort of school programming. I mean, not for nothing, the way that I see arts education is not just providing kids with extremely important training in the arts. I mean, the arts are valuable on their own. They don't need a psychologist to defend them, but I think that we should consider what a a just titanic benefit they produce psychologically, right? Right. Just the way that they deepen and broaden children's minds and just how important 
that is to our collective well-being. Yeah, it's and you explain it as being sort of a version of contact of contact theory, right? Which is the Gordon Alport, you can't hate people that you know. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Alport sort of talked about the idea that well, there's this also goes back to Mark Twain, right, who said that travel is fatal to bigotry and prejudice and that's why so many people need to do it, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea is that oftentimes a lack of empathy, sort of this sense that we have a lot of times, I think, in our culture now of us and them, that whoever is on the other side of a, of a divide, whether it's a religious divide or an ideological one or even a racial one, right, that, that someone on the other end of that is less human than us or that we can't connect with them, that that type of us and them mentality dissolves when you move to thinking about you and I instead, when you focus on particular individuals. And yeah, that's what Alport claimed. Mm -hmm. And a lot of research has shown that since that when we connect with individuals and form friendships across those lines, that difference starts to matter less. And we sort of are able to discover our common humanity. And I think fiction is one really sort of cost-effective way of doing that because yeah. um, it allows us to do so with really any, a- any type of experience. We're going to take a quick break. There's a lot to juggle in my day-to-day life, so whenever I have the option to simplify, I'm probably going to take it. And that's the nice thing about HelloFresh's meal delivery kit service. It's simple and easy. HelloFresh does all the meal planning, shopping, and prepping for you. Every week, they deliver pre-measured ingredients to your door, along with recipe cards. With HelloFresh, I can get dinner together in 30 minutes using just a couple pots and pans, or less. That's less time I need to spend thinking about what we're going to eat that week, less time spent on trips to the grocery store, and less time spent doing dishes, as the cleanup after HelloFresh meals is typically pretty minimal. You can choose from three different plans depending on who you cook for at home. There's a classic option, veggie option, and family option. You can also switch between them when you want to change it up. The family plan generally makes the most sense at my house. We have two little boys, and from our last HelloFresh delivery, I think they'd say their favorite was the crispy Parmesan chicken, and I'd agree. To try HelloFresh yourself, head to HelloFresh.com Goop80 and enter code Goop80 for $80 off your first month. That's like getting eight meals free. One more time, that's HelloFresh.com slash Goop80 and enter Goop80 for $80 off your first month. And now back to today's conversation. I thought that that section sort of about Alport's recipe was really interesting too in that he calls for when you bring groups together, the group that's more marginalized needs to have equal or more power. Is that, can you explain that? Because I thought that that was fascinating, sort of how the perspective that it brought. Yeah, absolutely. So, so the, the question here is, again, how do we use psychological insights, insights about empathy, to bring groups together when they're in conflict and help them sort of mediate that conflict and understand each other? And one of the ideas is when you bring groups together, they should always have equal footing in that interaction, irrespective of who's more or less powerful outside. My friend and colleague Emile Bruneau has been challenging that notion. He's got a set of studies that start with the intuition that, hey, maybe when people don't have a lot of power in the outside world, they might not 
need to hear the perspective of someone who is in power because they hear that perspective all the time. Yeah. Right? I mean, people from all sorts of marginalized groups need to understand the majority view just to survive. I mean, that's also the view that our culture is filtered through quite exactly. often. And so we're used to seeing the perspective of powerful people who are, I don't know, white and male, for instance, and relatively high in socioeconomic status. But we're less used to hearing the perspective of people who are from other groups. And so what Emil found in a, in a bunch of his studies was that when you bring groups together, powerful people really enjoy hearing the perspective of less powerful people because they think, wow, that's new to me. I didn't, I didn't know about that. But less powerful people often don't as much appreciate hearing about the perspective of super powerful others because they already know it. But mm -hmm. what they do value, what does make them feel like they're closer to a majority group is being heard. Not perspective taking, but what Emil calls perspective giving. Mm, I love that. I think it's so, I remember being at my university and we were like being walked around. I can't remember what it was. It was like in the, the first days and the the tour, the guide was sort of listing off all the clubs that were available to <laughs> different groups, some minority, some, not, some that were athletic. And this one white guy was like, what about the club for like white men? <laughs> I was like, this is Yale, dude, look around. This is your club. But it was interesting. It was like wonderfully naive. And, but I think completely, I think the majority, you forget that you're the majority. Yep. And that you define the language and the culture and how frustrating that must be. It's, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great, that's, that anecdote is exactly on point with this view. And I, I, I do think that it's, it's a good thing to be shaken out of once mm -hmm. in a while, right? To understand that you're, you know, if you are in power for whatever reason and under whatever structure, that, that your perspective is the default. <laughs> and, that, and that sort of, as you said, the whole world is your club, is your perspective. And, and that's why it's so important for people who are in leadership and power to, to try to travel out of that perspective. I mean, there's all sorts of work suggesting that as people gain power, they lose empathy partially because maybe they don't feel like they need it, right? They don't depend on others, and so they don't no longer need to focus on their perspective. But ironically, leaders who are empathic lead healthier, more productive, and more successful cultures in, org in workplaces and all sorts of other organizations. So it's important for leaders to fight back. And I think now you see that happening, like 20% of all U.S. companies now have some form of empathy training that they try mm -hmm. to put their leaders through. I thought this was another really interesting distinction that seems subtle but important. The difference between empathic distress and empathic concern. Is that just the same as the caretaking, like the wipeout that comes from over-identifying? Yeah, that's right. So em em empathic distress or personal distress is sort of, it's a form of emotional empathy, but it's specifically for other people's suffering, yeah. right? And it's that feeling that, you know, like I, I, I had this recently, actually, one of my kids had a fall and I had, I, in order to help her, I needed to stop freaking out myself. And I felt like I was really turning the dials on my own empathy. But empathic distress is this feeling that sort of when you see someone else in pain, you freak yeah. out so much that you end up focused on that instead of on helping them. That's the common parental 
move, right? It's like when your child falls and you're willing yourself not to react. Yes. And then you're like, oh, damn. <laughs> like, that's going to be a black eye. Yeah. You and you try to just, smile. You're yeah. like, I know that she won't freak out if I don't freak out. So I'm like, you're okay. <laughs> and then they're like, I'm not okay. Yeah. <laughs> Even that language is so hard. Yeah. Like, you're, I don't know. But it's that, that is what I think being a parent is. It's like, oh, I'm not going to let you know how much that hurt me to watch you get shunned by a friend or nailed by a glass door. It is such an adventure in empathy. I mean, parenting is one of the deepest challenges because you want certain things for your child, but at least for me, being a parent is about learning who this person is and letting them be whoever they will be and experience the things that they'll experience, even if those experiences are painful. And I wish that I could stop them from happening. I think recognizing someone's humanity is recognizing that they need to suffer sometimes as well. Yeah. And isn't it, I thought this was, this was a little bit of a gut punch in the book when you talk about how empathic parents tend to suffer more inflammation <laughs> and more disease. It's true. <laughs> Damn it. I know. It's true. It, I, I, I call it the well-being transfer, right? That sometimes parenting good. And, you know, this is not for nothing, maybe another sort of piece of our culture that, that we could um, get ourselves away from. But there is a sense that parenting is all about sacrifice, that, that it's just giving everything you have for your kid and then giving more. And sometimes it does feel that way. And certainly, as you said, empathic parents seem to suffer at a cellular level, mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe from the stress that they feel in trying to care for and worry about their child. But again, I think it kind of boils down to what we think empathy is. If you think that being empathic means suffering when someone else suffers, well then for you, in your attempt to be a good person, you might burn out. But if you're able to internalize that caring about somebody is not the same as sort of feeling pain all the time, that it in fact can be a joyous experience, a joyous attempt to bring someone out of a dark place and help them see a new type of light, well then I think maybe even empathic parenting doesn't have to be parenting that sort of ages us in, yeah. in, uh, in, in, uh, in fast motion. Yeah, no, it all seems to be sort of a question of boundaries too, right? And being able, I think women, we struggle with boundaries because we are caretakers and it's this idea that you can give and give and there's more Absolutely. until that well is dry, but that if we can create boundaries, even in, in terms of how much we engage with the suffering in the world or some sort of framework where it's like, oh, I can donate this much time. And and also, I think I love the stat in the book that in 2017, Americans donated $410 billion to charity and spent 8 billion hours volunteering. I think it's so important to, when in those feelings of overwhelm, to remember it's like that, the Mr. Rogers, like, look for the helpers. Yes. That you're not alone in this and that everyone, almost everyone is trying to help. I think it's so easy to feel fatalistic these days, right? I mean, we see sort of increasing outrage and isolation and stress and loneliness. And like I said earlier, it can feel like empathy is fading away all around us. But remember that sometimes the loudest voices in our culture don't represent everybody. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the bully or the extreme pundit takes up a lot of airspace. But that doesn't mean that there aren't, as you say, helpers all around. 
one of the things that I try to do in my research with, especially adolescents, like middle schoolers, is to point them towards the people around them who are acting kindly. Because at any moment, there are countless people around us who are trying to do, to do good. And it turns out that simply pointing people towards those norms, making them aware that all around them is in fact a culture of kindness, even if it's not sort of screaming at the top of its lungs, that actually inspires people, sort of gives them momentum, and I think that's the thing is that we don't have to, by ourselves, solve the world's problems. We can merely be part of a movement where together we can do things that none of us could do alone. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for joining my conversation with Jamil. I love the idea of mindset and its relationship to empathy, as well as what happens when we're overly empathetic. Be sure to pick up a copy of his new book, The War for Kindness, which is out now. Now over to GP for today's AMA. Which Kosas red do you wear? I need to know. And when I say need, I mean need. Erica needs to know. And Erica, I'm very happy to tell you. Kosas is a line of non-toxic lipstick that we sell at Goop. It's just an incredible brand. The colors are so beautiful. And the one that I wear the most is called Royal. It's a beautiful red. And whenever I wear red, that's the one that I wear. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's a wrap on today's episode. Please rate and review when you have a chance. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and share it with a friend. I hope you'll be back next week with me on Tuesday and Thursday. In the meantime, check out goop.com slash the podcast for more.